0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is the Reformed Media Review, episode number 31. Today we speak about Paul Helm's new book, Calvin at the Center. Welcome to the Reformed Media Review, your regular look at books and culture and other media from a Reformed perspective. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm pleased to have James Dolzell over at Studio A here in Windmore, Pennsylvania. James is a Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary in Systematic Theology. Thanks for coming over, James. Oh, good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. We're going to be speaking today about a new book from Paul Helm entitled Calvin at the Center which is uh, from Oxford University Press. Uh, it's a recent book. This follow, this is, in some ways, a follow-up to his 2004 work, John Calvin's Ideas. But this volume focuses on uh, Calvin getting at epistemology, was it metaphysics and, uh, and union? And anthropology. And anthropology. And anthropology well. But yeah. union with Christ is uh, a central concern, uh, one of the concerns Within this book, so we're going to dive into it and uh, discuss some of the uh, the ideas, and discuss its relation to the current debate on union or current discussion on union with Christ, as well as uh, get James' reaction to several of the uh, issues brought forth: nature sure. grace dualism, all sorts of great stuff in here uh, from Paul Helm. So,
1: tell us about the book, James. Sure, I mean the book is uh, the book is kind of a smorgasbord of different. Calvinian topics, uh, ways of approaching Calvin. What what Helms wanting to do is he's wanting to, he's wanting to follow up on his book John Calvin's Ideas. But as he says uh, at the beginning, that he's interested here uh, not only in finding sources but also heirs. in In the earlier book, uh, he was he was really looking at the the background of Calvin. Uh, Here he looks not only he looks not only backward but he also looks forward, and he wants to see, as his title indicates. Uh, how Calvin fits at the center uh, between those before and after him, and so he looks uh, on on sources. Most commonly, uh, Aquinas uh, puts in numerous appearances, and maybe a few more uh, by Augustine. Um, but al- also at times he he considers other uh, medieval influences on Calvin, and and Helm isn't Helm isn't necessarily trying to draw lines of direct influence as much as to say that calvin was born into and converted in a thought world that already exists and that he engages that thought world and that at times even when calvin uh appears to be to stand outside of let's say the scholastic tradition uh helm wants to say that he's he's more inside of it in terms of the way he thinks through topics uh than we might acknowledge that though he though he doesn't Though he doesn't discuss scholastic topics scholastically, right. he does have an opinion uh, about the content of of medieval and patristic dogma.
0: Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar and might not have read Turretin and some and some Thomas, uh, what exactly, in a really brief sense, uh, is the scholastic method? What does it look like, at least on the page?
1: I think it's important to say first off that scholasticism is a method mm-hmm. um, of inquiry not necessarily determining the outcome. The system of doctrine. Uh, Two scholastic theologians um, can come to two very different conclusions on the same doctrine, but using a method of inquiry, most often it it proceeds in the form of question and answer. Um, It's almost catechetical in a sense. Uh, Thomas tends to, he's sort of the the king of the scholastics, he'll he'll pose a question, and then he'll pose a series of... um, Affirmations or denials that mm-hmm. he doesn't agree with, mm-hmm. and then he'll give you a short statement of of what he believes the truth of the matter is, and then he'll answer all. He'll he'll offer a counterpoint to every one of the points offered by the hypothetical opponent, um, and in this way, he's able to to pull apart questions down to their minutest details. At times, uh, Calvin in frustration, just calls this sophistry. Um, and in fact, that gets echoed in the Reformed tradition, a, a view of scholasticism as sophistry um, and as and as playing with words. And yeah. at times it is. I'm not so sure that Cal- that Aquinas is as guilty of this as the subtle doctor Duns Scotus. But anyway. Um,
0: so you're saying, uh, Calvin, though you open the institutes, so you're not going to find... Uh the question and answer format the scholastic method as you would in Thomas, however.
1: Or or even after him in Francis Turretin. Exactly. Yeah, if you lay the Institutes of Turretin next to the Institutes of Calvin, two of the great Reformed Genevans, yeah. uh, the way of approaching those topics looks very different. Helm isn't interested in saying that one is better than the other. Mm-hmm. What he's interested in is knowing how Calvin uh, fits in the progression of Christian thought, even in the progression uh, of thought Expressed in a style that wasn't his own, um, so Calvin stands between medieval scholastics and we might say post-Reformation scholastics, mm-hmm. uh, and he's not, and and simply because he himself is not a scholastic, he doesn't choose to theologize uh, in that way, uh, doesn't mean that he doesn't bear great influence on those that follow him oh, and de- and derive great benefit from those that precede him. So, that's that's uh, Hel- Helms. Look here. This is not so much as he says a study of of Calvin and tracing out direct lines of influence. He's he's trying more to get after an atmosphere in which Calvin worked and and a later atmosphere that he uh, influenced. And so, in some sense, the lines of of descent uh, are a little fuzzier, um, in part because Helm is taking on such a such a broad and wide ranging scope of right, of right. Of thinkers and of uh, dissent. So in this way, I would compare it uh, as a kind of, as a kind of uh, opposite in terms of like David Steinmetz's book, Calvin in Context, or Richard Muller's book, The Unaccommodated Calvin. Those are really working in a kind of organic, historical way. Helm's book, it, though it ranges over the whole of church history, is not really um, a book of history in terms of you know properly doing history. That that's not his, his, the themes are historical, but the method is not historical. I see. The method is definitely uh, systematic, theological, and and uh, philosophical theological. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are those are the ways that he approaches Calvin. He says in his introduction that he wants to make Calvin. He says, "quote, speak to us afresh," uh, meaning <laughs> it sounds very postmodern. <laughs> well. <yeah. laughs> He, he, it's still Calvin, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not sort of just Calvin's idioms. It's, well, it's sure. Calvin speaking, uh, but it's Calvin speaking in a language that allows him to, allows him a little more direct access to yeah. his forerunners and his yeah. successors. Um, anyway, th- like I say, the book is composed of, of 10 relatively standalone chapters. A couple times, Paul Helm references you back to something he said before or is going to say later, but on the whole, each chapter Uh, stands as, as a sort of standalone study the unifying element is as we've described the unifying element is not so much uh what he says about calvin as much as it is the manner in which he situates calvin it's understanding as his title says calvin at the center um and that's really, that 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 method of approach is really the thread that runs through the whole volume. Now, there are basic categories through which we can think of the volume. Uh, the first three chapters are more epistemological in nature. Uh, chapters four to six are more metaphysical, and then the last four chapters deal more with questions of anthropology and doctrine of salvation, but we can kind of take those together as as doctrine of man-type questions. Um I'll just make a few comments and I thought we could linger over a couple of the yeah, chapters that might be of particular interest uh, directly more to the current state of questions and debate within uh reformed yeah. Christianity. Conservative reformed That's yeah, that's right. And <laughs> it, also I'll say a few things about his epistemology and spend a little more time on his, in his chapters on metaphysics and anthropology. Um, epistemologically, he deals first with a chapter that we sh- that he confesses he should have included in his earlier book, John Calvin's Ideas, and it's particularly Calvin's uh, emphasis on the knowledge of God and ourselves. This is something that comes out in the very oh, first section of exactly. Book One of the Institutes. Calvin is concerned with the knowledge of God and ourselves. We um, spoke
0: just briefly about this in episode two of Philosophy for Theologians, which we treated at least attempted to treat René Descartes and we're getting at the issue of innate ideas which is something that Calvin uh is very keen on does right away first chapter book 1 of the Institutes and um and it's something that's very opposed to other philosophies such as those of, of John Locke and, right. and others and and so it's very crucial to have a good understanding of this
1: and in fact uh and in fact, Helm does deal quite extensively with Descartes in chapters one yeah. and two. Interesting, um, which is uh, can be somewhat intimidating for those of us that are more familiar with Reformed systematic theology. Getting into Descartes um, is, is is can be somewhat can be somewhat daunting. Oh yeah, uh, to un to understand uh, his his meditations on first, first principle, first philosophy, but um, in in the first chapter, in which he discusses the knowledge of God in ourselves, he looks backward uh, at Augustine, and he he does he does agree with Augustine that man has that there's an intuitive immediacy in man's knowledge of God, um, and in this in this sense, he probably Calvin stands with Augustine over the more um, evidential approaches that we find in the medievals, especially in Thomas Aquinas. For Thomas Aquinas, man's knowledge of God is is the consequence of a rational process. Uh, Calvin doesn't deny that the consequence of the rational process uh, should be the knowledge of God, and in many ways he implicitly affirms the conclusions uh, at which Thomas arrives, but he does he disagrees with Thomas that we need to get there through a sort of, through a sort of process of reasoning through the facts as we have them Mm. and he go and he and he is more inclined to agree with augustine that there's an immediacy uh to this knowledge now interestingly Descartes echoes the same Descartes seems to echo the same thing is is what is the what is the common ground or is there any between calvin and Descartes? And, and helm decides uh that there is a common ground that there's a kind of augustinian common denominator uh in which both Calvin and Descartes, after him, support an immediate and intuitive knowledge of God. The The difference, though, is that while Calvin thinks that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are reciprocal, Descartes denies that. It's it's particular, exactly. it, which is really a subtle point to say, well, what's the difference between a Calvinist and a thoroughgoing Cartesian? Cartesian? Yeah. And the point is not intuitive knowledge. In fact, sometimes, sometimes Reformed theologians get saddled with all of the, with, you know, with kind of the Cartesian smears of, well, you're, you're basically just proto-Cartesians. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people say that to you all the time. Anyway, they don't yeah. say it to me, and at least for crypto cartesians, they don't say it that way. But they, you know, they tend to they, they yell that to you when you're driving down the street, oh, just I, hurling insults. If my windows down, that's what I hear <laughs> coming from the sidewalk. No, it's well. Uh, the
0: the issue for Descartes was trying to understand what's the most basic thing. He tried, he attempted to doubt everything. He tried to find what he called an indubitable, and and uh, that thing for him was the fact that he was thinking he. Or at least doubting. He could not doubt the fact that he was at least doubting, so he must be a doubting thing. Um cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. But the problem with that, um, as at least as I understand it from Calvin's point, you're you're arriving at knowledge of self prior to and apart from knowledge of God, at least methodologically.
1: Yeah. Like maybe maybe temporally Uh, Those things come together, and maybe even temporally, man has an intuitive knowledge of God that isn't the consequent of a rational process. But the problem is, those those two facts of knowledge are not co-implicated in each other, so that you could feasibly, on Descartes' outlook, have one... Piece of knowledge and not the other exactly. Where for Calvin,
0: it's impossible. Knowledge itself is always uh,
1: through and through permeated with simultaneous knowledge of God, and he would say that knowledge of God means that you truly, in that moment, know yourself as well. Yep. Um, so Helm does a great Helm does a great job. Um, I, I think sometimes he doesn't he doesn't come right to the point too quickly. He does a good job establishing what were the real similarities, even even theologically in terms of. In terms of both of them, looking back to Augustine, what were the real similarities between Calvin and descartes he doesn 't simply suggest that there were some in a kind of um, in a kind of facile way and then move on to the great contrast. Helm really does painstakingly draw out the similarities so that when we hear the accusations of Calvinism is Cartesian, uh, we can understand maybe more carefully how to answer that question so that's that 's chapter one mm. um, and it's it's really it 's really an excellent study. On something that is not just at the opening of Calvin's Institutes, but that really goes throughout the Institutes, I might say as an aside, um, we do find similar language, though not in terms of intu- in, not in terms of intuitive or implanted knowledge, as Calvin likes to say. But we do find uh, even medieval's like Aquinas saying that the subject of all theology or the inquiry of all theology is to know God and to know ourselves in relation to God. So there is a certain sense in which. Knowledge of God and ourselves is not is not an original formula with Calvin, but he does put an emphasis on reciprocity that is uh, probably unprecedented and is definitely not taken up in the Cartesian uh tradition. Now second in the second chapter he goes on into uh a more specific consideration of Cartesian thought, and he asks he asks an interesting question, kind of a thought experiment of whether Cartesian philosophy could have been the underlying philosophy of Reformed Orthodoxy um, in the way that uh, modified Aristotelianism came to be. If you read Protestant scholastics, um, if you read Protestant scholastics, you could, you find a pretty heavy dose of Aristotelian assumption in there. They're very seldom even giving a defense for it. They've they've imbibed uh, Aristotle. They've inf- they've leavened Aristotle with. Uh, some definite christian distinctives and they've repudiated uh important aspects of his of his paganism um but on the whole their outlook of nature um cause and effect these sorts of things are described usually in aristotelian terms and helm is interested in knowing whether whether that is arbitrary or whether there is something uh in aristotelianism that made it more appealing Uh, to the reform than cartesian thought and what he comes up with is is uh some reformed professors at leiden university who actually were cartesians and he and he goes through and he he follows out a um he follows out a debate between uh reformed orthodox scholars on both sides some arguing for something closer to descartes than aristotle and some arguing uh for a more robust aristotelian outlook um Anyway, I'm not going to go into great detail on it. Just to say, it's a it's a fascinating discussion, and the way he relates this to Calvin is that Helm says natural that, law,
0: Nicomachean n- ethics.
1: Well, he says that <laughs> he says that that Calvin's own ambiguity regarding the Aristotelian ideas of of uh, ess- essences and substantial forms leaves leaves the commitment of the reform somewhat uh, up for grabs. Meaning, if you're going to explain the nature of essences and of substantial forms, um, you can you can if you can still be calvinistic and in a sense take your pick and and helm helm suggests that if you modify cartesian thought enough uh it might it might have been an alternative metaphysic uh to aristotelianism the one thing though that um Descartes didn't have and that and that really put off especially the dutch reform scholastics um was that he didn't have a view of, of knowledge as spirit-taught wisdom, um, and he didn't give a priority to the census divinitatus. You find the first
0: um, First Corinthians one eighteen through 2.16 emphasis. Right, yeah. Like, that Christ is wisdom from God, and that he's our epistemic principle and God. No, D- and Descartes'
1: inquiry is much more philosophical and, yeah. and doesn't, and isn't sufficiently Christianized, and and for that reason, even though Descartes was a Roman
0: Catholic, right, we should we make clear we're not just uh, yeah he's not just not criticizing secular. him for something he shouldn't right. be aware
1: of, but yeah. in, in in as much as his in as much as his inquiry and quest for knowledge was yeah. more philosophical, um, it it made him toxic. Uh, to the development in Reformed Orthodoxy, and f- mm-hmm. and for good reason. And Helm acknowledges those, but Helm is just op- Helm is just sort of opening the discussion of whether of whether Calvin's own ambiguity regarding commitment to a certain metaphysical system um, may have led to these later debates among the uh, Dutch theologians uh, a century later. Mm. And uh, anyway, so it's a fa- it's a fascinating. Uh, study he rounds out his section on metaphysics in chapter three uh with a uh consideration of scripture, reason, and grace, and it's a little too far ranging to go into here, but he he essentially contrasts calvin's view of the Holy Spirit um as internal witness to the believer, and he shows a lot of continuity between Thomas and Calvin. On the question of the the testimony of Scripture to reason, and he shows that Calvin and and, uh, Thomas are pretty well agreed on internal and external witnesses to the authority of Scripture. But the thing that Calvin has that that, uh, Thomas doesn't is a strong emphasis upon the witness of the Holy Spirit to the believer— um, and upon faith as fiducia, not merely as a census. Mm. Um, as far as a census goes, as far as assenting to the truth of the authoritative witness from within and without scripture, internal and external witness, uh, Calvin and Thomas are agreed, but Calvin goes further to an emphasis of the Holy Spirit, which uh, some recent, uh, I think a recent dissertation from University of Utrecht, or may have been Leiden, but published by Brill argues that uh, Warfield and Bovink actually. Stepped back a little bit from Calvin's emphasis on the Holy Spirit, interesting. And the emphasis on the Spirit that we find in Calvin and Owen is somewhat muted in the late nineteenth-century debates over uh, inerrancy and in the authority mm. of Scripture. And that they're calling for kind of a return to to Calvin's emphasis on the Spirit.
0: If you um, has, has Doctor Ferguson written anything on this subject, Calvin and the Spirit? I believe he teaches a course on it. Sometimes, yeah, he does. West 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 in West West. fact, a number of
1: years ago, I took I he's, took his he's course. He's written
0: the the Holy Spirit volume in the. Uh, with,
1: what's that yeah, and, and, yeah, the Holy Spirit volume in the uh, contours that's of not uh, Christian looking theology. In, it's not, it's for, not a study of Calvin, no. but it's but it is actually quite a bit of Calvin's oh, yes. theology. And I, I would say as an aside, if you if you want a modern day expression of a Calvinistic doctrine of the Holy Spirit that is that is uh dynamic yeah. and insightful, then Ferguson's book is That's a, I, an unbelievable book. Great greatly helpful. The first time I read it, I must confess I didn't get it. I really, I, I thought it was interesting, but I remember coming away thinking, "Well, oh, that's a book about union with Christ, not so much about the Spirit." But little did I know that those were inextricable. Uh, in, <laughs> oh, that's what the Spirit does. Yeah, that's right. Those those Applying doctors, redemption to those us can't be pulled out. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, in chapter four, uh, Helm takes off into a more metaphysical direction. When I say metaphysical, I don't mean. Uh, philosophical as opposed to biblical theological uh what i mean is he's he's getting more into the questions of uh of the being and nature of god um and he begins in chapter four with a discussion of god's visibility in short uh his contribution here is to say that um edward dowie uh who wrote uh, a book on calvin's uh Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, back in the 60s originally. Um, and Colin Gunton, more recently, have read both Augustine and Calvin wrong on their doctrine of God's unknowability. And so Helm comes and he responds by arguing that that Augustine and Calvin both argue for a doctrine of God's visibility. Now, obviously, he's not talking about visibility without accommodation. He's not talking about um, a kind of Roman Catholic view of the beatific vision in which man is able to gaze uh, nakedly on the nature and the essence of God itself. But he's talking about, he's talking about a visibility as knowability, and, and whether, you know, whether Calvin and Augustine were committed to mm-hmm. as unknowable of a God as uh, Gunton accuses I them of. I forget
0: who I was reading, but it was uh, the way they translated visio Dei. It might have been John O'Malley. In the history on Vatican II, was speaking about he was using visio in the sense of contemplation.
1: Visio is contemplation. Yeah. It is it is traditionally that is a conception of speculative theology, and when I mean speculative, I don't mean guesswork. I mean speculative in that old sense of uh something beheld yes but that something beheld might reason, be with yeah, might the, be with the mind's eye rather than yeah. with a kind of physical vision and it's true that there's some discussion to be done on I what exactly a, roman catholics mean by visio day
0: right and i think there's a there's a, this large swath of, of interpretations but um even for protestants out there for the the listener um a lot of this comes i believe from colossians 3 which has i, I don't know the precise verse but it's you know, we're being renewed, in essence, we're being renewed essentially uh, by beholding the glory of the Lord. And also Second Corinthians uh, 3, 4, chapters 3, 4, and 5 have a lot to right. do with um, our noetic renewal, being renewed in our mind, our, our progressive sanctification uh, leading up to our glorification, which culminates in our uh, consummated fellowship. I with think the Lord way as we see him,
1: maybe as Vossians, the way we'd want to say it is there's there's a there's a progression of an already not yet. in the Oh, there's day no doubt in which we will we are we, we will come into a more um, complete and exalted and glorious um, under a vision of God in the future. That's
0: what I hope um, to do. My my further research work in <laughs> such a fascinating topic and one I think that um, there hasn't been a whole lot of work. Uh, looking at the roman catholic position and then under trying to understand some of their decent insights and how they would relate to reformed particularly a vossian understanding of such a topic it really has been a, a, a hole i think in in the history of of reformed thought would you agree
1: uh it it has i mean early, early on the vicio day is is pretty well attested to um, yeah with the
0: scholasticism and, in scholasticism it disappeared for a
1: while. but it yeah it, di- it did It did disappear. Um, I think some were suspicious of it as being uh, rightly
0: so, given given where it's where it's gone and
1: divinization, those sorts of things. uh, Which leads us
0: back to uh, to the to the book at hand. We don't want to stray too far away, but um, it's also uh, here. This is uh, related, leading up to our union discussion. I don't want to jump the gun on you. But uh, I just received a copy here of "Tributes to John Calvin: A Celebration of His Quincentenary." It's a book in the Calvin Five Hundred series uh, by David Hall, and uh, one of the cha- this is a collection of the papers delivered at the the gigantic event in Geneva um, this last summer. And the last one in here, or second to last, the twenty second contribution here is by Bruce McCormick, who's a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. The title is Union with Christ in Calvin's Theology, Grounds for a Divinization Theory? Question mark. I haven't read it yet, but that, that brings us into the discussion of, of union with Christ, that it's been taken so many different ways um, that we have, uh, you know, even some people questioning its relation to uh, orth- Greek Orthodox theology and theosis. I, th-
1: I think on the question of theosis or divinization— Uh, Part part of the fast part of the recent fascination is that there's a very trendy move in evangelicalism toward Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah. So that I don't I don't think participationist theology participationist theology and it's true that Aquinas had a strong doctrine of participation um, and uh, someone like Karl Rahner would even want to say that he has a strong doctrine of theosis, um, but I I think that we still need to think through what exactly the medieval Roman view was as as a Western as a Western doctrine of divinization versus an Eastern before we begin to ask the question of whether uh, Calvinism fits with a doctrine of divinization as though there's some kind of monolithic <laughs> right. um, doctrine out there and that, I guess that's what concerns me sometimes when I see when I see divinization I I see it as nothing more than than the emphasis of Peter in in second Peter one of being partakers of the divine nature.
0: Yeah. But um, to me, that's not at all what divinization is. And it might be a, a recasting or, or it's well, a pretty slippery use of the I'm word. I'm saying that's, that is the text. Sometimes that how was, that's
1: people use it. That's what the Western right. tradition or yeah. pre-Reformation would use to appeal. Um, and there was great difference in the, even in the Western tradition between, uh, the more the more scholastic types and the more mystical types. I mean, yeah, I think of the difference right. between Bonaventure and Calvin. Bonaventure's going to say some things about the soul's flight to God that uh, you, you would never come close to saying in a pulpit. Uh, <laughs> and Thomas is going to say some things about it that to you are going to sound uh, much closer to the text of Scripture and partakers in the divine nature without sounding uh, like this kind of ontological transformation in which we become something more than man right um and i i'm not an authority on that subject i do but i do think if you want to get at the taproot of what's going on in the trend the trend is that there that evangelicals have entered into this sort of of uh, love affair with eastern theology not knowing a whole lot about eastern theology but eastern theology sort of scratches the itch of the age of of relation and community and all all the things that are kind of uh, uh, trendy in the secular world uh, we're finding that eastern orthodoxy gives us a kind of christianized version of
0: it's almost this uh paleo orthodox or uh the radical orthodox concern i'm not trying to compare these people to these schools i'm just saying there seems to be some inherent desire to move beyond the postmodern church and the emergent church to move on to something new but as as doing so um repristinating or going back to the old that's what paleo means a paleo orthodox so they're oh. trying to find these old doctrines whether they be platonic influence on certain strands of christianity yeah. or whether it be this greek orthodox doctrine which would be from the medieval ages and trying to use that in a in a new and fresh way
1: well i i tend to think that those at least at the popular level, that's not a very discriminating move. There's almost just a fascination of look. I, I have found a version of Christianity as as old as yours, or even you know, as the Easterns would say, even older. Um, I have found a version of Christianity even even older than um, than the Western tradition, and almost as if that alone, uh, you know, were sufficient credentials. In in uh, the discussion of God's visibility in Helm's volume. He he is reacting to this kind of Eastern trend in a little bit of a different way. He's he's responding to the accusations of Colin Gunton, um, and and he, and and secondarily also to Karl Barth that Calvin's doctrine of of a hidden God was insufficiently Christian, that the the invisibility of God um, is basically leaves leaves a God behind God that we can't know can't worship can't love can't commune with um and they find the source of this or think they find the source of it in augustine's uh in augustine's doctrine in which uh gunton thinks that Augustine holds the unknowability of God to reside not in the persons of God the persons of god are are the sort of knowable visible. Uh, as it were, side of God, especially via the incarnation, and the unknowable part of God, the most inaccessible part of God, as it were, uh, God doesn't have parts, but for the sake of argument, you know what we're saying, that that most inaccessible part of God is the divine nature. So his assumption is uh, that Augustine must have thought, like Gunton thinks, that we can all access the divine persons, and that the divine persons the unknowability of God resides in this sort of uh, dark, mysterious, underlying divine substratum from which all three persons derive their divinity. Uh, In short, Helm basically says that Calvin, or that Gunton has misread Augustine, and by implication has misread Calvin as well, in that uh, he doesn't think that Augustine holds to a kind of um, substratum view of the divine nature, because if there's a substratum, uh, into which the three divine persons are planted as it were and from which they derive their divinity then that would be to suggest a quaternity in which there's a fourth dis- there's a fourth distinct something in god mm-hmm. uh, but rather that the divine nature subsists in three persons not as a substratum uh underneath the three persons uh No you
0: get around this with the pe- doctrine of perichoresis. Yeah, per- yeah, doctrine. that's
1: right. And this is and helm takes a discussion in an interesting direction he actually argues that that uh contra gunton that that the real position of god's invil- invisibility as held by calvin and augustine is actually an invisibility of of his three-personedness not of his divine essence and what they want to argue is and I, and i think on safe grounds with the evidence in romans 1 that that the thing in god the thing about god let's say it that way that is more accessible to our mind that is more that is more evident before us is is not his three-personedness but it is his divinity itself so mm-hmm. that the invisible thing in god is not the divinity but it's exact but it's the divinity that is most visible and it's what god is as three-personed that is most invisible now he's not talking about incomprehensibility incomprehensibility uh, of course applies across the board there 's a sense in which we don 't have uh, a direct and exact scientific knowledge of what God is in himself there 's a certain unknowableness about God as three person and in his essence but he 's talking in terms of in terms of revelation in terms of revealedness interesting um, the more accessible the more accessible the more visible aspect of God is his divinity, not his three person nature. Um, <laughs> I think this this really is pushing back on this eastern trend uh, that wants to think about God as more accessible. The more we emphasize His three personness, and I think what Augustine and what Helm is saying, Augustine and Calvin are doing, is saying that that no, the more accessible thing is to to our minds is Him as divine, and the more inscrutable and difficult uh, and imperceptible thing is, in terms of natural knowledge of God or implanted knowledge of God, even. Uh, is his is his subsistence in three persons so that we tend to think the more personal god is the more accessible he is uh and yet uh helm helm isn't content for such a superficial uh presentation of god's invisibility he thinks that gunton uh has that wrong and that the invisible and that god is more invisible as regards his being in three persons than, than his divine nature anyway it's a Interesting, interesting discussion, um, and and definitely worth considering. Uh, I think another important important chapter. I especially like the metaphysical chapters through the middle of the book. Uh, he gets into the question of providence and predestination, and he he starts out by showing again a lot of continuities uh, between Aquinas and Calvin, saying that predestination was quote most certainly not an invention of the reformers. Again, I think his most of us in the Reformed tradition know that John Calvin didn't invent the doctrine of predestination. That's kind of a <laughs> popular textbook version uh, of Calvin on that doctrine. But he does bring out some important differences in as much as uh, he and Aquinas both share a doctrine of predestination. Um, there is an emphasis on predestination in Calvin and in the Westminster divines that is really lacking in Thomas, and that's, that's really their pastoral emphasis on the doctrine itself. Uh, Thomas tends to treat it as a scholastic doctrine that is deducible from his doctrine of God, whereas Calvin and the Westminster divines after him are concerned to present, uh, think through the doctrine as, as a biblical doctrine, uh, not so much as something that must necessarily be the case given what God is in himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that they necessarily disagree that Thomas came to the right conclusions and that even his way of getting there was, uh, was sound, but the way that they articulate it tends to be in a, in a more pastoral and biblical theological sense. Um, now the reason he singles out the Westminster divines and couples them together with Calvin is he finds... A distinction between the english puritans in their less scholastic treatment of divine providence and their dutch uh, continental counterparts in the dutch he finds a return to the more um thomistic explanation of providence in terms of aristotelian physics um, and helm does a great job interacting with a lot of the recent dutch scholarship uh, some volumes published by brill uh on this question of on this question of causation and determination, um, providence and predestination. And he concludes that the, the Dutch were much more Aristotelian than the English. In, in part, uh, this is because the Dutch were having to counteract the occasionalism of Rene Descartes. Mm. So the Cartesian philosophical contents, uh, context for the Dutch uh, really pushes them toward an Aristotelian explanation of cause and effects uh in a way that is not really seen in the english uh puritans and in to this extent helm concludes that the english puritans uh look and sound more like calvin mm-hmm. uh than do the dutch in their doctrine of uh predestination and providence in cha- in the sixth in the sixth chapter he goes on a similar theme he gets into he gets into questions now of the necessity and the contingency of the atonement, and it's kind of interesting to think of discussing the atonement under the subject of metaphysics, uh, because much of the recent discussion of atonement surrounds the question of penal substitution. Mm-hmm. Um, Helm doesn't Helm doesn't really at all get into that aspect of the question of the atonement. He is more interested in the question of the necessity of the atonement, and yes. he he. Argues that Calvin is Anselmian in some ways and and non-Anselmian in others. In particular, uh, he shows that Calvin disagrees with Anselm's view that there could be an incarnation without a reconciliation, but that the whole purpose the whole purpose of the incarnation uh, and the and the atonement is is reconciliation, um, so that you have no incarnation without reconciliation. The other the other thing that he brings all provided.
0: Up, the existence you know presuming the existence of sin, yeah of, cu- yeah, of, of course, course yeah, Just of course, to make course. that clear the, the, right, the, because a lot of other theologians have different understandings yeah, not, of reincarnation. Yeah, obviously
1: not reconciliation from <clears throat> nature or anything like that, but reconciliation from sin or, yeah, the freedom, the freedom of God and the atonement then uh for Anselm lies with the ability to to apply atonement to whom every will, but for calvin um the freedom of god is in the fact of the atonement itself now in an interesting uh explanation and a and one that it, interestingly is is in calvin but may not be the majority calvinistic view today is that he he shows that calvin believes at least indicates in certain places that god could have reconciled man with a word and that reconciliation could, and that reconciliation could have happened uh, apart from incarnation. He and he shows elements. So it's of, almost
0: a justification without uh, a the justifi-
1: A justification, a justification without without the, without the righteousness, without a legal transaction. Right. And and Helm Helm says that Calvin does allow for this, and kind of indicates that he's more Scotist in this sense, yeah. and that in that Scotus emphasis on God's will was that there was a kind of absoluteness and power of the will in which. God was free to choose not only reconciliation but free to choose the means so that God is not God is not necessarily bound to atone by a uh, a death sacrifice uh if he should choose to reconcile man and I- interestingly he finds uh he finds counterparts to this in in uh Later, superlapsarians like William Twist and Samuel Rutherford, and there's a and he goes on after establishing Calvin's view, and there's there's some mixed data on what Calvin thought, but it does seem that Calvin did not have the emphasis that we later find in Owen, and that becomes the majority view uh, among the reform that that uh a, that reconciliation demands atonement and requires a satisfaction of of justice. Um, the means of satisfying justice is the question. Did God, did is, is atonement as satisfaction of justice necessarily entailed in God's willing to reconcile, to reconcile man to himself. Um, Helm says that Calvin doesn't hold that. Um, and he, and he also then shows up that William Twist and Samuel Rutherford, two great superlapsarians of the 17th century, uh, like Calvin did not hold that. And on the other side is John Owen, who, uh, Helm says changes his view. Early on takes the view that God could have reconciled with a word, um and later on changes in to his famous argument that God necessarily must atone given his free choice to reconcile yeah. Uh, yeah. sinners. Um after a an interesting discussion of how this played out between Calvin's heirs uh in this in the seventeenth century, Twist and Rutherford on one side versus Owen on the other. Uh, Helm concludes that there's one aspect in, their, in the 17th century approach to the atonement in which all, in which all parties, uh, Twiss, Rutherford, and Owen, all stand together against Calvin's approach, in that each one of those in the 17th century begin their discussion of the atonement with the doctrine of God, Whereas Calvin begins with the doctrine of the atonement as it is on the pages of Scripture, and then draws conclusions from there to his doctrine of God, the the scholastic method that that Owen, Twist, and Rutherford were were all um, inclined to use much more so than than uh, Calvin allowed them to discuss questions of hypothetical possibilities mm-hmm. um, and and questions of entailment and this sort of thing. Whereas Calvin uh, passes over that and instead just exposits a biblical doctrine of the atonement and moves from there to his doctrine of God. Um, So Helm says, I'll give you a quote here, says, there's an obvious methodological difference between Calvin and the participants in this Puritan debate. By the mid-17th century, more of the subtleties of scholasticism had become a part of reform dogmatics than in Calvin's day. The intellectual machinery had become more nuanced and complex. There was also... The case of this particular discussion of a difference in method, a willingness also characteristic of scholasticism, to discuss the doctrine of God in abstraction from what God had in fact done, to raise hypothetical possibilities. Now, in in drawing this up, uh, in drawing this out, Helm Helm isn't trying to say that Calvin was more biblical and pious than his followers. He's simply saying that the way that the way that Calvin comes at the doctrine. Um, Calvin comes to a doctrine of God through the atonement, whereas his successors come to the atonement through a doctrine of God. Um, Interesting. But this is what's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, neither approach necessarily determines the outcome on what you think about the necessity and manner of the atonement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scholastic approach coming at atonement through the doctrine of God produces positions that look like Calvin's and positions that don't look like Calvin's. And so I think Helm's point is to say that one of the, the probably the unsaid point he's making is that theological method is not necessarily going to determine doctrinal outcome, um, and that and that uh, the same outcome can be reached through two different methods. Anyway, it was, I thought it was a, a fascinating discussion of of how Calvin fit um, into this uh, into this whole question on the necessity or contingency of the atonement and mm-hmm. how Calvinists. Uh, i mean if if helm is right most calvinists today probably don't exactly agree uh with with calvin yeah. uh but w- do we disagree with calvin uh for the do we disagree with calvin for the same reasons that owen did uh you know these are questions we have to ask ourselves hmm. now the uh the chapter that i thought was was one of the most interesting and again this is because of my own local interest is his chapter on the duplex gratia, or the twofold grace of God. In chapter 7, Helm kind of changes his subject, and he starts moving into the doctrine of, of man, or in this case, the doctrine of salvation. Mm-hmm. And he asks the question of whether, uh, whether ca- how Calvin understood man's reception of the gifts of justification and sanctification. What in a Calvinistic soteriology is the relationship between Uh, justification and sanctification in fact at one point uh he said he he describes the reformed tradition uh on this topic as torturous in fact i'll I'll give you a quote here uh after he explains that calvin uh calvin holds these two doctor these two benefits of justification and sanctification to be uh Inseparable, inseparable, but distinct, Yes, Inseparable yet distinct. They're un. They're entirely unmixed. They don't overlap each other. Um, one doesn't organically flow out of the other, uh, and yet uh, one can never appear on its own. They're inseparable. They come together, uh, and they come together specifically because they come to us through union with Christ. So that the the ground, the ground of the connection, the ground that connects inseparably justification and sanctification is not simply that god decided in his will to sort of put them together and make sure that they always stuck together but right. that the actual organic ground of the union between those two benefits is the fact that they come to us in a single union with christ himself through a single faith union with christ we receive the twofold benefit because those twofold benefits are in jesus uh, they come to us when we receive jesus and it 's it 's the presence of justification and sanctification in Christ uh that grounds their inseparability uh when when we receive them from christ
0: so believing in in Jesus Christ by faith through the power of the spirit having been regenerated and being able to do so right that faith uh essentially is is the bond in which we are mystically united by the spirit to Christ and so that his death and resurrection becomes ours, so that we're contemplated in Him, and we receive everything He has obtained as right. a result. That right. being justification, adoption, sanctification, and eventually glorification.
1: Right. We, and and already already there's an already yeah, aspect, right.
0: but we 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 treat that benefit slightly differently. I, I think, but for Calvin, essentially being found in Christ, this is in Book Three where Calvin speaks of union with Christ as. Of the most importance, yeah. And then later, he does speak about justification being the hinge upon which our, our religion turns. But the but that justification, along with sanctification, is part of a twofold, a twofold grace that is the response to the problem of sin,
1: and it's and it's received, and it's received simultaneously.
0: simultaneously. Simultaneously, yeah. yeah.
1: And and that's in and,
0: Jesus Christ,
1: and and so I I mean if I could say what Calvin's getting or what Helms getting at in terms of Calvin's position, we might throw it out there in terms of a question: uh, what what primarily? I'll put the emphasis there. What primarily does faith get? Yeah. Um, and what faith gets for you primarily is Jesus. Yeah. It gets absolutely most Christ. fundamentally.
0: That's why. Um, I'm so keen on on saying that, that God is the gospel, uh, yeah. and that Jesus Christ—the the most basic thing we can say about the gospel is that Christ, through his death, through his obedient life, his humiliation, his death and resurrection, ascension, has obtained for us redemption, and we get that redemption in him,
1: in Christ. Yeah, I think we have to say it may even stress a little more—not only that does he get for us redemption as something out there that he sort of— no. Holds in his right hand, as it were, and then, and then hands, hands to it us. to us. But it's no. something that he actually obtains for himself mm-hmm. in his own personal experience. Mm-hmm. That's so his that, story is Salutus. So that the redemption that's embodied in Christ is Jesus's own Justification as vindication, because it's,
0: he became sin on our behalf, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: and 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 well, and because but and always remaining re- impeccable, that results right. in death. Um, and yes. the the reversal of that must be lo- uh, life. Death is a sentence of condemnation. Life is a reward of justification. the 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 sentence in death puts to death our sin. The resurrection in life reverses that condemnation on us, so that Jesus Himself in His resurrection. Receives a justification, that is to say, an open vindication of himself as righteous. So that Jesus Himself is justified. Jesus First Himself 3, is 16. sanctified in the sense that He is dead to sin. Jesus dies. Jesus 6. Himself dies to sin, uh, and 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 then rises in new life to God. Right. Um, and that's so that Jesus Himself is sanctified, not from not, 2, not from corruption or pollution to purity, but but from uh being under the being under the power of sin in its condemnatory effect in his death uh-huh. to being to being now alive uh to God in new everlasting life. Jesus didn't possess think of it this way, Jesus didn't possess everlasting life uh in his, in his in his body as our as our second Adam representative prior to the resurrection, right. and if you question that, simply ask yourself what happened at the cross? He died. And so,
0: um, for Calvin, the way this connects to the duplex gratia is that for the believer, the one united to Christ by faith, there is never a time in which you would be justified without also having died to the power of sin.
1: Absolutely. And, and, th- the, and those are
0: different problems. The and justification we- does not, is not the breach of the power of sin— The breach of the power of sin is a renovative category. A justification is strictly forensic in which it's a declaration in which uh, the problem of sin's condemnation, its guilt, is is, uh, taken care of. But the death to the power of sin is that breach of sin's power in your life. You could find that in Colossians 2. um, You find that in uh, Romans 6. So those two benefits are absolutely important, simultaneously distinct, yet inseparable.
1: And I think Calvin's position there's there's a level of subtlety here that we also need to observe, and that it's it's not only that there's not a time in which you are justified but not yet sanctified. Right. He would also say that because I think some people can concede um, that there is that there's a definitive sanctification that is received at the same time as justification. But that's but, the breach
0: cal- of the power of sin. It's not total renovation. But Calvin right. wants to
1: go further and say that the cause of that definitive sanctification. Yeah. is not that, that there's no causal priority even if not a temporal priority there's not even a causal priority given to justification justification is not the cause of those renovative benefits that is uh that is sanctification uh, primarily right. as we conceive it uh that the cause of those benefits is not justification um, but the, rather justification is the inseparable context or atmosphere in which those benefits are received so that we can't say, uh, th- again, remember, distinct yet inseparable, so that we're not talking about sanctification and justification as though we're talking about things happening in two different rooms closed off from each other. Uh, and the reason, the reason that they're inseparable is because they're received not through multiple unions, not through layers of union, but through one simple faith union in Jesus that attaches you to Jesus. And when you get Jesus by faith, you get at once everything that Jesus is in himself. Jesus in himself is justified or vindicated in resurrection, uh, sanctified in as much as he has died to sin and and been risen to life in in new power, eschatological life. Uh, he is glorified, and that he is raised up. He is adopted, not in the sense of not being a son, but he's adopted in the sense of historically, he has, yeah. he has moved from probational sonship yeah. that was contingent upon obedience to eschatological sonship that is now possessed in certitude, so that he is the son who has been made perfect. That progress from perfecting sonship through con- through. Through conditional obedience yeah. to perfected sonship, that meaning the obedience has been received, accepted, and vindicated by God in raising Christ up from the dead. He pronounces Christ as son and heir, and heir in a new in a new manner. No longer as no longer as well pleasing son from act of righteousness to right. act of righteousness, but now as well pleasing son whose righteousness has terminated at the point of death, who obeys to the fullest extent, even death on a cross, and that and that is received. So what we're saying is. That Jesus possessed everything that we conceive as benefits, legal or transformative, are all possessed in Jesus himself. Not simply as the getter of benefits, but right. really as the embodiment, through his own experience of right. death and resurrection, of the benefits. So that you can't receive Jesus in faith and not receive um, all, of him. all of him at once, simultaneously inseparably and yet at the same time we're not collapsing those distinctions down into each other and making them meaningless. We're not saying that sanctification is justification no. is adoption is glorification. Quite the contrary. Um, neither are those things though though they all happen in one single event for Christ, though Christ is sanctified in the sense of lives now to God in 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 a new power, uh is living to God and has died to sin in the in the act of the gospel death and resurrection and Inasmuch as he is justified in his resurrection, inasmuch as he is enters into eschatological sonship in his resurrection and into his glorified estate in his resurrection, all of those things happen for Christ in a moment or in an event um that isn't that isn't uh, sequential and uh and they and they all become his in a moment and yet that doesn't mean that those concepts collapse into each other or dissolve into each other right. so that the lines are blurred. To be glorified, uh, the same event glorifies him as makes him eschatological son, and yet the quality of glorification and the quality of sonship are distinct yeah. qualities yeah. Or, or benefits that he uh, earns or achieves for himself through mm-hmm. his obedient death, and then the resurrection as reward. Anyway, we're, we're going into kind of the details, but if We have to understand that faith gets Jesus, not simply a litany of gifts sort of meted out through a kind of taxonomic order. Uh, And Helm says, I think this is what Helm's getting at through his entire chapter, but he says, um, had these features, and I'll, I'll editorialize here, of distinct yet inseparable benefits, now back to Helm, if these features had been observed then the torturous discussions of the relation between justification and sanctification which have been a feature of the Reformed tradition down to the present day might have been eased if not avoided that's yeah. that's, that's, that's those are some pretty strong words and i think torturous discussions uh, yeah, i think a lot of us <laughs> a, a lot of us are going to have a hard time swallowing that uh and yet i think in a certain sense he's right now he goes on to explain uh a few things especially re- regarding his his whole emphasis on Calvin at the center he looks back and now to Augustine and he he asks the question how could Calvin uh have been so attracted to Augustine's position when Augustine seems to a very slight degree possibly to collapse sanctification into justification he see and and Helm's argument is that Calvin Calvin is attracted to Augustine's position because of Augustine's emphasis on the inseparability Augustine has a strong emphasis on inseparability, even if he's not always as clear as he should be on the distinctions. Uh, So the inseparability aspect leads Calvin to really appreciate Augustine, uh he also gives an explanation of also how how Calvin might not have thought that Augustine really did collapse sanctification and justification mm-hmm. i'm i'm going to i'm going to spare you the details it's it's a, it's a very subtle distinction we got to leave something
0: uh, to the book for, so if people want to buy it and read it
1: well they they they'll, <laughs> they'll get that whole discussion of how uh, how Calvin can affirm Augustine even with Augustine's uh blurring uh, blurring of certain aspects but he also he also goes on to ask the question how did this emphasis on the primacy of union with Christ as as that thing as that as that thing which gives to us the benefits simultaneously uh of justification and sanctification, how did this emphasis get lost? And he lays the blame uh he lays the blame in two places. First he and when I say blame, it's it's not so much it's not so much blame, but he does he does explain the context in which this emphasis can can be lost sight of. The first is the uh, the locus method of his descendants, basically, and he he takes Tertullian specifically as an example. Um, the The tendency of a locus method was to divide down the subjects so that when you when you talk about soteriology, you categorize everything in a kind of in a kind of logical order in which you discuss the benefits individually. Now Helm, Helm isn't saying this is wrong. In fact, in some ways, he says that the locus method of theology, that basically the, the method you see when you open Burkhoff's systematic theology, he's saying that the locus method of theology actually advances certain of Calvin's doctrines and actually helps the advancement in ways that, that Calvin himself didn't do, specifically sola fide. He says that the scholastics are, are clearer than than Calvin, on Calvin's doctrine of sola fide, and that the locus method enables them to bring clarity and precision to that doctrine that Calvin himself didn't. He doesn't say that Calvin was wrong or fuzzy on it, but he says that Calvin didn't have the advantage of the precision of scholastic language. So on the one hand, sola fide, the doctrine of sola fide benefits from the locus method, but the doctrine of simultaneous yet distinct benefits in union with Christ is actually... Uh, obscured by the locus method, because, as Turretin discusses, uh, on the one hand, justification, and then in a separate chapter, sanctification. And because because the two are separated that way, he begins to lose sight of the ground of their inseparability. Now, Turretin does confess that they're inseparable. But because he's not doing a biblical theology of union with Christ, sometimes the reader can wonder exactly why. (laughs) They're inseparable. And again, back to that whole question, are they inseparable just because God decided to keep them together and that they would always be there together, justification and sanctification? And what he's arguing is that Turretin, though he he acknowledges inseparability, fails to see the organic nature of that inseparability as being in union with Christ, uh, simply because to do that would defy the whole locus method itself so what he's saying is locust method good and bad depending on what we're doing theologically so
0: he's, am I, if I'm getting this correctly is he's arguing that Calvin's method of writing the fact that he stayed away from the precise scholastic method afforded him to present a more biblical representation of union with Christ and, on this and question, soteriology
1: on this question Calvin's biblical theological method allows him greater clair- clarity on the doctrine but uh, his biblical theological method tended to obscure the clarity on sola Fide.
0: Interesting. And the locust method yeah. remedies
1: some of that. So uh, uh, Helm Helm again isn't saying locust method bad or good. He's simply no, saying you need to recognize the different methods are going to have different strengths. It's uh, a tool. In, you don't use a you don't use a screwdriver to pound a nail in. The second thing that he does argue is that it, this is it. This was a fascinating argument that it was actually the development of covenant theology that also tended to obscure the doctrine of simultaneous yet distinct benefits in union and i when i first read that i thought to myself how well how could covenant theology i mean that that's really that's kind of the biblical theological contribution of the 17th century is their covenant theology how could something so biblical theological uh obscure something else so biblical theological as as the doctrine of union and the reason he argues this is that there came to be an emphasis upon the Trinity's role in in um, salvation, in which the Father, in which the Father was conceived of as the one purposing uh, salvation, the Son was the one securing salvation, and the Spirit was the one applying salvation. I think these are probably familiar categories to a lot of people. Uh, Helms' point was, though, that what that Trinitarian Uh, division tended to do to the doctrine of union was to remove the place of Christ himself in the applicatory phase so that the doctrine of the spirit and the doctrine of Christ began to be extracted out from each other uh, as covenant as covenant theology was unfolded. Um, And things like things like economic or functional identity between the spirit and Christ were obscured in that way of construing covenant theology. Mm. so this is and I thought what was fascinating is that this is Paul Helm saying this, Paul Helm, who's known uh, to bring his his philosophical scapel, uh to every discussion, and he wants to th- and you know he 's often accused of wanting to think through everything in a kind of hard and cold and philosophical way, and yet here he is unfolding a chapter in which he says that the biblical theological nature of Calvin 's theology actually has for him and for us certain advantages over the more um over the more analytic and lo- and locus method of theology. And, and I, what I took away from the chapter was, we really need both. This is not a day for Reformed theologians to be fighting over whether the way forward is biblical theolo- theology or, system- or traditional systematic theology, but it's really a day in which we bring those two into conversation with each other, not to diminish uh, or collapse them into each other, but to recognize the peculiar strengths of both. Yeah. Um, I think maybe you see something like this in, in someone like John Murray, Mm -hmm. uh, struggling to really bring these two worlds, uh, together, Mm -hmm. Uh, a systematic theologian who writes a commentary on Romans. I mean, that's that, that kind of thing. And in a sense, that's, that really is, that really is the reformed tradition. It is both. Um, and I'm not saying that it's easy to, to, to combine them or know how to bring them into conversation with each other. Exactly. Um, it's, it's not easy. Um. Few, a few other a few other uh items we won't go through it in chapter 8 Calvin discusses um the whole question of compatibilism or Helm discusses Calvin's compatibilism um b- basically between between the will of man and the will of God and he decides that um in his eclectic theologizing that Calvin uses uh, modified elements of stoic philosophy and that Calvin's Outlook is broadly deterministic. There's a lengthy discussion on the Stoic elements in Calvin's thought. Uh, he uh, Helm doesn't deny that or downplay them, but he does he does sort of throw them in a context that helps us understand that this isn't just straight Stoicism. Uh, this is really motivated by uh, certain convictions of what Scripture teaches, and that Stoicism offered certain helpful models or articulations uh, of of God's absolute sovereignty. The the one question on compat- compatibilism that he's interested in is wanting to know whether god's determination of a certain outcome uh necessarily made uh his influence over man coercive so that man when he wills something is really coerced to willing simply because he's determined to the end uh already by god and he basically he basically denies that calvin teaches this um that, that there can be absolute determinism without coercion; that there's still accountability, even with, even with the backdrop being that God has absolutely determined the outcome. Um, and again, leave something to the book. You can read the chapter <laughs> his explanation of it. Um, chapter nine, in brief, is a discussion of an early work by Cal. Well, not just Calvin's early work, but really his whole approach to the question of soul sleep. Um, and the nature of body soul relation, and he shows how he uh, how he disagrees with uh, fellow reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli. So an interesting, uh, not the Peter Martyr Vermigli held to soul sleep, but but uh, Peter Martyr tended to be tended to be more uh, Aristotelian in his notion of body and soul, and Calvin tended to be more Platonic. Uh, and I think the conclusion, in short, is that it's probably. That the Calvin was right on soul sleep, but Calvin thought that the soul was the primary part of man, and that that man was that man was mainly soul. Whereas uh, whereas yeah. Peter Vermigli would teach that man is that man as man is body and soul. Yeah. And and interestingly, uh, Peter Martyr sounds much more like Thomas, that hylomorphic Aristotelian notion that that man that man as man is a composite of material and immaterial body soul unity um mm-hmm. and that there is a natural that there's a natural tendency in man as man to be united again to his body um so though and you know the, anyway i'll leave it at that there, <laughs> there are discussions on chapter nine. There, i think there's a tendency among reformed evangelicals to think and i, I was taught this at one point um that I am a soul, but I have a body, you know, and to and to hold that distinction, right? I am a soul, but I possess a body. That it's would not, be right. that would be a very Calvinistic way of thinking through it, uh, uh, in the sense of that would probably be agreeable to Calvin. Yeah. But that is, but it's really Peter Martyr's position that is probably more true to the scriptural doctrine of creation, uh-huh. um, and also is probably the majority position in, in Reformed Orthodoxy. So. Right. Uh, fascinating chapter. In the final chapter, uh Helm again put dips wades into controversial waters. If it was controversial in his understanding of Calvin's doctrine of union, in which he has some hard things to say about the Reformed tradition, uh and in favor of Calvin, uh the same thing comes up again in chapter ten, his final chapter, in which he discusses uh nature-grace dualism. And in short, he disagrees with Bavink that the doctrine of common grace is one of Calvin's uh, uniquely enduring and original contributions to theology, Uh, but he believes that Calvin actually did hold to a form of nature-grace dualism, but that there, but his ex, you know, and immediately you think, well, no, of course Calvin didn't. His argument is, (laughs) his argument is that Calvin agrees with Augustine and Aquinas in their version of nature grace dualism, but that Calvin disagrees with Chaton, bellarmine and the Counter Reformation in the way that they transformed nature into the notion of uh, uh natura puris, pure nature. Um and his argument is that the Jans the, the, the The Reformed and and Aquinas all stand together over against Cayetan Bellarmine and the Counter Reformation, and that there are actually two Roman Catholic views on nature grace dualism. The one holding, the one which is now really uh, the codified view of the Roman Church uh, after Trent, that nature is pure nature that is to say it's a kind of secular notion of nature in which nature is this free standing thing that is neither that is neither good nor bad and that can raise itself up to god by pulling itself up by its own bootstraps i think most of us were rightly taught that that's what the roman church believes but helm's argument is that the roman church did not believe that prior to the influence of cayton on the count on, on the tridentine council and on Bellarmine. uh and that what calvin and that when Calvin articulates a doctrine of common grace, Calvin isn't articulating a position uh that is against the Roman Catholic view of nature, but rather he's simply articulating another uh perspective on the same phenomena of of nature uh as was meant when when earlier Roman Catholics talked about nature so what's what's the point The point is uh in the fall, for instance, the nature of man still retains, uh The nature of man is not completely destroyed, it's marred, it's corrupted, but the nature of man as man is retained, and inasmuch as the nature of man as man being a creature is a gift from God, there is a certain mark of God's gifting of uh, being—that's maybe a more Thomistic way of saying it—there is a mark of God as the giver of life and as the sustainer and as as the good source of all things in nature itself, so that nature— Uh, we were talking earlier depends on how you think of grace do you think Mm -hmm. of do you think of grace uh as as a gift or do you think of grace as unmerited mercy uh if you think of grace as a gift uh, of god there's a certain sense in which nature itself as a gift as a thing made by god for his glory and sustained by god even in its fallen state in as much as it's not obliterated uh Still bears in itself the marks of God's goodness, so that and what Helm is saying is this was the position of Augustine and of Aquinas, that mm-hmm. nature for them was not pure nature, but it was nature as as a gift, so that so that uh, nature itself could receive the grace of God. We didn't you didn't have to save nature by grace. Uh, grace didn't come to nature as something completely outside of it. Uh, and and rescue nature from itself uh, as corrupted, but that grace itself could actually be embedded, grace as gift that is embedded into the institutions of nature, uh, mm-hmm. so that the secular in- So so what Bobbing sees as Calvin's doctrine of common grace, uh, Helm wants to say, yeah, that's right, that that is a doctrine of common grace, but that doctrine of common grace is not necessarily fundamentally at odds with that older Roman view of nature as a gift of god and bearing the mark of being a gift of god Mm -hmm. Um, so what he says is that bovink is wrong about the theological innovation of the 16th century the theological innovation of the 16th century according to helms uh, reading is not calvin's doctrine of common grace That's just simply a a way of nuancing the same outlook on nature that had already been there in Christian orthodoxy. It's not Calvin's doctrine of common grace that's the new thing. The new thing is Rome's new understanding of nature as pure nature. Basically, Rome's understanding of nature without an understanding of grace as gift embedded in nature. So the the doctrinal innovators uh, are, are not... Are not Calvin and the Calvinists in the sixteenth century, but it's actually Caetin and the counter reformationists that are the innovators um, and that calvin's view does have room for nature and grace there is a there's another aspect of this discussion about about whether there's some inherent problem in the dualism of nature and grace um, and Helm does say, and i 'll just give you a little little peek at what he says he basically says that that Bavink is is wrong in in perce- that the Baving's solution to the problem of nature grace dualism simply introduces another form of dualism mm-hmm. uh Baving says it's a pro- you know we have this nature grace dualism when we say nature grace dualism we mean grace stands outside of nature entirely and alongside of it and grace can rescue nature but grace can't permeate nature and that form of dualism is a problem a uh Helm is denying that there was such an absolute dualism in the nature grace uh contrast of the medievals and of Tom or and of Calvin. Secondly, he's saying that Bobing's solution to that problem of simply adding uh the 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 uh, categories of um of common grace and special grace, uh though those are are those can be valid and helpful uh categories, that those categories themselves do not necessarily avoid the dualism that Bavink is so interested in is simply swapping out one dualism for another yeah but he accuses Bavink of trading nature grace dualism for common grace special grace dualism and so mm-hmm. if the problem is dualism itself that one that one category can't gain access to another and can't permeate the other that grace can't permeate nature and that nature can't be the bearer in itself as nature of grace if that's the problem then Helm is questioning whether whether the solution of special grace common grace really solves that problem or whether it just simply relocates it into a different <laughs> idiom uh anyway whether you agree with it or not i yeah. i see i see a interesting lot point of, uh, I see a lot of uh potential for that final chapter to at least inform or become a significant piece of the discussion of the possibility of a reformed view of natural law mm-hmm. um i'm not I'm not advocating or denying it here uh but simply saying that I do think that Helm uh reorients that discussion of whether the reform can of whether the reform historically did believe in natural law and whether today we can uh he does take an anti kyperian anti-bovinc uh, view but uh readers will have to decide for themselves whether Helm is is more in keeping with Calvin and the reformed scholastics or not. Mm. Well
0: the book Calvin at the center Um, I'm actually glad we went through a thorough review uh, because the book is from Oxford University Press and probably not accessible to all the listeners. Uh, You can pick it up from uh, uh, wtsbooks.com. The center spelled in the English way, C-E-N-T-R-E. From Westminster, it's $81.18. Uh, from Amazon, right at the moment, it's seventy nine dollars and twenty cents. So I'm sure if you got a hold of some, Westminster, I'm, they'll I'm give sure, you the match, I'm sure matching price. Some,
1: some <laughs> interested will will wait around for the paperback.
0: Yeah, edition. well, yeah, it is. It isn't. Sounds like a very interesting book and one I'm sure many people would be interested in. Uh, the price a little cost prohibitive, but. Uh, if that's your thing, uh, pick it up, or if you'd like to wait around for the paperback, you might be able to get it for only $50. Or request <laughs> it at your
1: local library, and then... <laughs> yeah, you can do that, too.
0: Uh, so, uh, yeah, the book available, wtsbooks.com, Paul Helms, Calvin at the Center. You can find information about our other programs, including the new Philosophy for, theolo- for Theologians we mentioned. Uh, we treated Rene Descartes. Uh, you can find Christ the Center, uh, the, our, our flagship program and all the other things we're up to at reformedforum.org. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please email us, mail at reformedforum.org, or you can Twitter us at reformedforum. And now you can send us actual, real, physical mail, if you so desire, at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, we ask you to tolelege, pick up and read.